This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pay, your host for today's podcast. Today, we come to the end of our series, A Life of Glory. It seems only appropriate that we end with instructions for living by grace so that the world is drawn to Christ by our testimony and by our deeds. What is this ministry of grace that we've been given and made possible by Jesus Christ? How are we to be ministers of grace in this dark world that so needs the light of Christ? Well, Mark Ray will help us with these questions and prepare us to take Christ to the world. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace, and he has a substantial history with Grace School of Theology, including being an original Board of Trustee member and primary advisor from earliest days. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Mark will soon be launching the Grace Center for Spiritual Development, which we'll be telling you about more in the weeks to come. But let's listen now to Mark Ray's message, Live by Grace, in our series, A Life of Glory. We started a number of weeks ago with this, 1 Corinthians 10.31, and the word glory. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it in such a way that you manifest his character to the world. In order to do that, we have to conform to his character. And that character coming out of 1 Peter is a character that says we need to be holy. And he created us to be that holy character. What happened was sin entered the world. Sin entered the world through Adam and subsequently through you and me, and it shattered that holiness. And God had an answer for that because God's desire was for you and me to be who we were created to be. And his answer for that was grace. We saw through that message on grace that we've been abundantly blessed with 33 divine gifts of grace, overwhelmingly graced, and out of that, we're supposed to live triumphantly, overcomers, because of how much God has blessed us. But there's many times that we don't live triumphantly, and we don't live triumphantly because our sin nature rises up again. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, it rises up again, and yet God had an answer for that too knew that our sin nature would rise up, and he gave us his son who died for us and was risen from the dead, that his death, by his death, and knowing who we are in Christ, we're going to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. That he put to death that sin in our life. And so we are to present ourselves as the instruments of righteousness that we are because of Jesus Christ. But even then... The flesh, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, the flesh raises its ugly head. In the me, myself, and my, the I, 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 want what I want when I want it, the self-focus, total self-focus on us, the selfish self-focus on us reaches a peak. And Paul says at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am because of the I, 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 I. And God again has an answer for that, doesn't he? Romans chapter 8, and we get the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. What God provides is himself in us, the third member of the Trinity in us, to defeat the flesh. The only one that can defeat the flesh is the spirit in us. 
And he tells us that in Romans chapter 8. And the week after that, we looked at the full extent of the work of the Holy Spirit. Between 30 and 50 ministries lavished upon us from the work of God indwelling us. His promise coming out of the new covenant that we would have him indwelt in us. And that we're filled. And when we walk in the Spirit, the Spirit through us produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. God, those character traits of Christ that we see by the power of the Spirit transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. One character trait after another. And last week we looked at now that we understand all of this within the spiritual life, how do we begin to nurture it? And we saw that God provides us that as well through worship and prayer. And so the question now becomes, what do we do with all of that? What do we do with the spiritual life? Do we just hang on to it as tightly as we can? Well, friends, the spiritual life was never to be hoarded. It wasn't to be held tightly to. It was to be poured out, poured out upon others as we have been blessed. We are to bless others because who is it that's living in us? And so what's poured into us is the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the ministries, the, the divine blessings, the, all of the spiritual things in the heavenly places, all of the blessings that are possibly there. And what we dare not do with that is to hold it close. What we do with that is what we see Jesus Christ do, and that is pour it out. And what we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ, and that is to show God off to the world, to pour out what's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit into the lives of others. So this morning, we're going to look very specifically at a 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at the idea of how we have been graced and how we then, through being graced, we grace others. And so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And out of that, we're going to see first the message of grace. The message of grace for salvation and the message of grace for sanctification. After that, we're going to look at the mind of grace. What's the attitude that Paul had that he wants us to exhibit as grace floods into us by the power of the Holy Spirit? From there, we're going to look at the means of grace. What's the vehicle by which grace goes out and touches the lives of others? After that, we're going to look at the ministry of grace and four very specific things that earmark, that characterize the ministry of grace. And finally, we're just going to wrap this whole thing up with the miracle of grace because grace is an absolute miracle. Let's start with the message of grace. 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 1 through 8, Paul lays this out for us very clearly. Verse 1, moreover, brethren, he's talking to the believers in Jesus Christ at the church in Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you what? The, say it loud, the gospel. I declare to you the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I declare to you the gospel. I'm going to tell you this. Listen up, here's what's coming to you, the gospel. It's the gospel which you received. This is the good news message that you took in, you received it. I love this. And it's the gospel in which you stand. It is the foundation of your faith. It's the rock on which you stand. And as he begins verse 2, it's the gospel by which you are saved. And so what Paul tells us is, this is the gospel that you received in which you stand, the foundation on which you stand, and it's the gospel by which you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain, hold strongly to this. That idea of standing firm, it's a military term. Literally, it means the hill has been taken. 
So stand firm and don't give ground on that hill. In other words, this is the gospel. It's the truth. Believe it. You have believed on it. You were saved by it. Don't disbelieve it because this is the truth and it is the good news. He's now, in verses 3 and 4, going to give us four verbs, four verbs that are going to lay out this gospel message. It's the clearest place I've ever seen in all of Scripture to lay out the gospel message unto salvation. Listen to what he says. Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, this is Paul saying, I didn't read this in a magazine. I didn't look at CNN online. This is directly from God to me to you. I'm declaring this directly to you because I received it directly from him. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The first verb is the verb died. That Christ died. And what did he die for? He died for our sins. He died for us. That's exactly right. He died for our sins. He died in our place. He died on behalf of us. And it says he died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, the proof, the truth of his death on my behalf is the scriptures. And it's foretold in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. What Christ did, according to the truth of the scriptures, the foundation on which it rests is this. The scriptures tell us that Christ died for you and me for our sins. And he died for our sins specifically for us to have that positional relationship, to be holy again. Paul says, first, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he says, and that he was buried. The second verb there is that he was buried. Now, notice it doesn't say according to the scriptures. And there's a reason why. Because burial was the proof of death. You don't need the scriptures to prove his death. You could prove his death by his burial. And this letter was written to a whole group of people, any one of which was still alive at the time that Christ was buried and risen that could have gone right to his gravesite or had relatives that could have gone. It was a proven fact that he was buried because he died. You don't bury live people, do you? You bury dead people. And the proof of his death was burial. So what we get is Christ died for our sins and was buried, the third verb, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Foretold in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, Jesus Christ didn't remain in the grave. He rose again, and the idea behind this is not only did he rise again, but he is still risen today, amen? amen. And where does he live? So evidence of his being risen Look to the person on your left and the person on your right. Evidence of him being risen, it's right here in this room. And it's according to the scriptures. The scriptures foretold of it. The scriptures are the foundational truth of that. And finally, the fourth verb is this, and that he was seen. Notice that doesn't say according to the scriptures. Why? Because an eyewitness was proof enough of the fact that he was the risen Jesus Christ. So he rose and was seen and possibly seen by some recipients of this letter. And then Paul gives us a great laundry list. Listen to who saw him. Verse 5, and he was seen by Cephas, by Peter, then by the twelve, and then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So some of those have died, but many are still alive who could attest to the fact that, he, that they were eyewitnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then he was seen by James, and then by the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by Paul. So here is this incredible laundry list of eyewitnesses who could testify to the risen Jesus Christ. And what do we get today? We have the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ in the scriptures. 
So he rose the third day according to the eyewitness testimony of the scriptures, right? We don't have to say, gee, I didn't see him. We have the eyewitness testimony of those that did. And by the way, 500 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee dispels any possibility of a hallucination of Jesus because 500 people saw him. So we get this incredible statement, a very simple, clear statement of the gospel message unto salvation. It's this. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And the proof is not only here, according to the scriptures, but the proof is here. Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Paul says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The futility of the fact that if Christ didn't rise, I'm still dead. I'm still, everything around me is death because I'm still in sin means that what he did, if he didn't die, if he didn't rise again, then nothing was accomplished. And I'm still stuck without hope because of sin. But because he died and rose again, he conquered the grave, he conquered sin, he conquered death. And he placed in me the power of the Holy Spirit so that I could conquer that sin in my life. And there would be hope. It's an amazing situation that he gives us. And so we get the gospel message, this clear gospel message, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Unto salvation, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And out of that, we get that great statement out of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you were saved through faith. And it's a gift. What was given to us was the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of God through his son that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. Did I earn it? Can I pay for it? Can I do enough good in this world to earn it? So it's a gift. Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. Amen. Unto salvation. Now there's also the part of grace that is unto sanctification. And Paul says in verse 10, listen to him in verse 10. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all. I labored by the grace of God within me. So there is this secondary side to it, and that is, now that I have this spiritual life within me, what do I do with it? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The salvation that I have within me, it's now time to work at it. I've now been made positionally holy again in Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross, and now the work of the Holy Spirit in me allows me to begin to work on living like who I already am in Christ. I'm holy. You feel it? Maybe not, but it doesn't belay the fact that I have the Holy Spirit in me who's working with me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in me to work into will to his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? That I would be who I was created to be. This holy living being showing him off to the world, magnifying him, glorifying him, manifesting his character to the world because the Holy Spirit's working inside of me. And so Paul says, I labor in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, focused on Christ, with the Holy Spirit transforming me from one character trait to the next, I labor. And he says, I do this by the grace of God within me. It's the, it's the grace of God working within me. If I did this on my own, I'd fail. It's the grace of God working. Listen to 1 Peter 1. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope full on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
We're to continue to labor, to be sober, to be obedient, to work at this thing. Why? Because it's what God calls us to do, to work at becoming who we already are in him. So the message of grace is made possible because of Christ Jesus who gave himself to others. Christ Jesus who poured himself out into others. And the convicting question I ask is first, do I have that message of grace? Absolutely. But what am I doing with it? That's a convicting question for me. What am I doing with this message of grace? Paul moves on in verses 9 through 10. He now talks about the mind of grace, this attitude we're supposed to have. And he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. First of all, he says, I am the least. Paul lays out for us this Disciple of disciples lays out for us the mindset that is the mindset of Jesus Christ, that mindset of humility, that mindset of a servant, that, mind, that mindset of a selfless nature. Listen to him in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Friends, I got to tell you, if Paul was the chief, what does that make me? Paul was the chief among sinners and recognized what Jesus Christ had done for him on his behalf. And so he had the mindset of humility, the mindset that Christ had. Listen to, listen to what Paul says in, in Philippians 2. These wonderful statements he makes in verses 2 through 7. That we're to have the same mind of Christ. A mind not of selfish ambition or conceit, but a mind in lowliness esteems others more important than ourselves. That we look not only for our own interest, but for the interests of others. And that's, we look for our interest, but our interest is God's interest in us. And we look for that same interest in the, in the lives of others. That we have the mind of Christ, that mind that took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men and was obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. That Jesus Christ was willing to become a servant and did, became a servant first for you and for me. And so the mindset that Paul is telling us, this mind of grace is one that because we recognize what has been done for us and through us, there is humility, there is sacrifice, there is selflessness, and there is this servant heart that is the mind of Jesus Christ. And it's a mind that says, how do I serve others? How do I take the servant that Christ was to me and serve others? And I love his final statement here. Paul says, I am what I am by his grace. 1 Timothy 1.14, he says, And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ. That he poured out that, and here's Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, right? Paul, who was the one who went out and was actually killing Christians, had a decree in his hand to go kill Christians. How many of you have done that? You have a decree in your hand to go kill Christians? But don't think that places us any higher in the chain than Paul. And yet Paul says, I am what I am now. I am who I am in Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ, because of the abundant pouring out of his grace in my life. I am who I am because of the grace of God in my life. The mind of grace is made possible in Jesus Christ who humbled himself for you and me. Do I have the mind of grace? Well, I hope so. I pray that I do. The convicting question is, does it show? Well, now Paul moves to the means of grace. I love this part. The means of grace, verses 10 and 11. He says, 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. First thing Paul says is that the means of grace is labor. The means of grace is I work. Now listen to what he says in Titus 2. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The means of grace is good works. Am I zealous for good works? Am I zealous to go pour out grace? In 2 Thessalonians, he says this, that the same name of Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted his, the grace that was bestowed on him to not be in vain. He says it so that God's grace was not in vain. He didn't want the grace of God wasted by him not taking it and doing something with it. And so he says Christ created us for this zealousness for good works. He wants this holy people who are zealous for good works because when we go do works, who do we show off? Yeah, we show off Jesus. We show off his character. We show off his nature. And when we do that, we're humble servants. We serve others. We're now walking where we should walk. And let me tell you, to do that, to be zealous for good works, to walk in that walk, that's rich, abundant life. That's what he calls us to do, and that's reward here and reward eternally. Paul says, we preached and you believed. Literally, we showed you. We talked to you about it. We taught you about it. We preached it. We lived it. And when we did that in front of you, you believed. And so the means of grace is made possible through Jesus Christ, who works in us for others. Do I have that means of grace? And am I living it? By what I do. Do others see that means of grace in me because I'm zealous for the good works of the Lord? Well, we've looked at the message and the mindset and the means. Let's talk just a moment about the ministry of grace. The ministry of grace. And there are four things I want to say about the ministry of grace. The first one is here. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. The first thing I want to say about the ministry of grace is this. It's a ministry of gratitude, not guilt. We do the ministry of grace not because we have to, but because we want to. I love the way the evangelist Larry Moyer puts it, that once we trust in Christ and we start living this spiritual life, we live it as a thank you letter to God for what he's done for us. You ever get a thank you letter? Isn't it a wonderful thing to get a thank you letter? What Paul tells us is our life is a thank you letter to God for what he's done for us. And that's how we live it. We don't live it under the burden of guilt that I have to because I have to please God or I have to pay him back. That would be like this. It would be like going to dinner at the White House. And you get all dressed up and you come to dinner at the White House and you have this lavish meal. You've been invited personally. And you sit down to dinner and you have this lavish meal and you get up and you put a dime on the table to pay for dinner. Excuse me? That's the slap in the face it is to God when we try to work it out, when we try on our own, when we try to pay for what Christ has done for us. 
He just wants us to walk in it. He wants us to walk where he wants us to walk. He wants us to be grateful. He wants us to be, to be the kind of people who are zealous for good. That's what he wants us to do. And when we try to please him by paying for it somehow, it's the wrong motive. It's the wrong attitude. Second, it's a ministry of good works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For We're created for these good works, but listen to what it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He not only prepared us for the good works, but he's prepared the good works for us to walk in. And so we're a zealous people to do that. We're a zealous people to walk where God wants us to walk. Third, it is a ministry of God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's a ministry that we show God off. The ministry of grace is a ministry that we show God off to the world. And finally, it's a ministry of giving. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we've been given grace. We've been lavished with grace. And we've been given it because of Jesus Christ. Is that something we hoard? Something we give. Something we give away. So the ministry of grace is made possible for Christ Jesus, who is glorified when we minister grace to others. Do I have that ministry of grace? Yeah. But am I actually ministering to others? Boy, I hate those convicting questions, don't you? So I want to talk just to conclude here about the miracle of grace. And I want to tell you a story about the miracle of grace. The year was 1944. The man's name was Bert Fritzen. Bert Fritzen was in the American infantry. The U.S. infantry that was on the European theater. He was in, he was in Germany and he was part of an advanced troop of infantrymen who were out there in front of the main soldier group, the main ground troops. And in this particular place in Germany, Fritzen led a, an advanced troop of about 10 men and they came to the edge of a forest. And on the other edge of the forest, there was a clearing. And on the edge of the other edge of the forest was another forest. So there was this 200-yard clearing. And Bert went out as the lead advanced scout. And the deal was, when he got to the about halfway mark, about 100 yards out, if it was clear, if the coast was clear, he was to motion the rest of the infantry to come on. He gets almost halfway out. And he's about to turn to motion the infantry to come out, and the Germans on the other side raise up, and they begin to fire. And there are bullets whizzing overhead. It's like mayhem. And two bullets rip right through Bert's legs, drop him to the ground, and he falls down this small embankment into a stream. And he's crying out because of the pain of what's ripped through his legs. And as he, as he looks over the edge of the bankment, embankment, he sees his worst fear coming across him. This German soldier is crawling toward him, bayonet on his gun, and Bert's thinking, it's over. It's done. It's finished. He closes his eyes expecting that this is going to be the end. And for this interminable period of time, nothing happens. When he peeks open his eyes, this German soldier is standing over him, grinning at him. And he puts his gun down, takes one hand, puts it under Bert's head, takes another hand, puts it under Bert's legs, lifts him up, and carries him 100 yards back to the American soldier front line. He then turns around and walks 200 yards back to the German forest. Bert wrote about this later, and here's what he said. He said, no one dared break the silence of this sacred moment. 
There were no guns, there were no bullets, there was no sound. A short time later, the ceasefire ended, but not before all those present had witnessed the power of grace and love in the actions of that one man who risked everything to save his enemy. The miracle of grace. Matthew 5.16 says it this way, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works in heaven. They may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we're asked to do. The miracle of grace is this. It is that we who are unworthy of grace have been graced abundantly. We who are unworthy of grace have been graced abundantly. And when we share that grace with others, we manifest the glory of God and fulfill who we were created to be. Isn't that an amazing thing? We're unworthy of grace, and yet we're so filled with grace that when we pour it out, we glorify him, and we do exactly what we were created to do. And we become exactly who we were created to be. And friends, that's the spiritual life. In very simple terms, the spiritual life is a triumphant, grace-filled life that is shared generously to the glory of God. Here's the challenge. It's not enough just to know it. Spiritual life says we share it. We go be who we were created to be. And we live by grace. You have been listening to Mark Ray. We have been called and have our purpose for this life of glory. But our training continues until the Lord calls us home. We at Grace are prepared to come alongside you in your journey to live by grace and to minister grace to others. We offer devotionals. We offer courses through our chaplaincy program. We have one led by Senior Chaplain Ken Schlinker. We also have many books like Bewitched by Dr. Dave Anderson. These will give you a biblical picture of grace. Do check them out at gsot.edu. Do you have friends and family who need to hear about God's amazing grace? Please share our podcast. It's a perfect way to start that conversation. And we have an archive of those podcasts that you might have missed. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.